Welcome to Inside the Treehouse, a conversation with world-class K-12 education experts who will talk about their personal journey and all things education. I'm Jeff Jones, and our podcast is brought to you by Solution Tree, the home of some of the greatest tested and proven solutions to problems we face daily in K-12 education. Today's guest is Douglas Reif. Douglas is publisher uh, for Solution Tree Press as well as president of Solution Tree International. So welcome to the Treehouse, Douglas. Well, thank you, Jeff. Douglas, you and I have known each other now for quite a few years. Uh, We first met when you and I were both vying for the same position at uh, Core and Press and I am very happy to say that you beat me out for that position at president of Corwin Press. Well, I think you won because now, um, 20 years later, I'm working for you. Well, we both had a great friend in Gracia, uh, who was the, one of the founders, she and David McCune of Corwin Press. Uh, she was quite the woman. She asked me to apply for the job. Then she told me that, well, the search firm has found this other candidate and, uh, they picked the right guy. Tell me about the, the times at Corn Press, and we're going to go back uh, into your history. We're going to go way back. But just Corn Press, when you started there, how many books a year were they publishing? How big was Corwin? Uh, Corwin at the time was publishing maybe 50 books a year, 45 books a year. It varied a little bit. Um, and um, we had, um, say, $6 million in revenue. Mm-hmm. And when I left, we were publishing about 215 books a year, and um, we had a 28% KGAR. Um, Compounded annual growth rate. Right, over the seven, eight years that I was there. So by the time I left, it was uh, nearly $30 million um, in revenue just on books. Um, We didn't do anything else. But it was a a great run that you had at Corn Press, and... And I was so glad that we could be able to get you to come to Solution Tree. I was happy to. And uh, they facilitated my departure by firing me. So um, <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> it worked out just great. One door closes, I mean, is slammed, and another one opens. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your publishing careers. You've been in publishing now for 40 uh, in years. In March, it will be 46 years. 46 years in March. And so talk a couple, a little bit about the other places that you worked. I started um, when I was still in high school at the local publishing house in my hometown, a company that was called Perfection Form. It's Perfection Learning now, uh, but the Key family owns it. And um, they primarily did workbooks and things like that. Um, uh English language mostly, and their biggest conference was the National Council of Teachers of English. Um, And when I started, I started in the warehouse, picking orders, stocking books, and then I was moved to the computer room, and then I um, actually was in the art department as a production artist and graphic designer and illustrator, and I did that for about seven years. And during that time, I was getting my college education. I got a degree in history, and they moved me to the editorial department after I graduated. Um, And uh, actually, my experience at um, Perfection Form changed my life. Um, I was working in the creative offices in Des Moines, 
And um, my boss at the time, Wayne DeMuth, said to me, hey, I heard you wrote some short stories. And I said, yeah, but they're not very good. And he said, hey, hey, wait a minute. I'm the English teacher. I'll decide if they're any good. You bring them in. So I brought them in and uh, he read them. And a few weeks later, he called me into his office and he opened the folder. And my little short stories were blood red with his comments. He wrote in a red pen and he said, uh, you know, I think you I think you got some talent and you could be an editor, but I can't hire you as an editor without a college education. You wouldn't have any credibility with educators. He said, you need to go to college and get yourself an education. And I said, well, Mr. DeMuth, I, I have a couple of things uh, that's going to prevent that. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, I have something money can't buy, which is poverty. I can't afford to go to college. <laughs> and I said, the second thing is I'm, I'm not sure I'm smart enough. And uh, nobody in my family had gone to college. Um, my dad had an eighth grade education. My mom had a 10th grade education. I did have a brother that was had just started at a community college on the GI Bill. Um, and even though I graduated, um, National Honor Society, you know, gave a, a, a graduation commencement address, all of that stuff, I was insecure, didn't think I could do it. And he said, I'm going to tell you two things. He said, uh, first of all, if you have to live in my basement, I'll get you through college. And secondly, do you know how many dumb people I know who have a college education? If they can do it, you can do it. <laughs> and so I started college, and I took 18 to 21 credits a semester to get through as quickly as possible. I graduated in three and a half years and then started again full-time at that company. And to his word... Uh, he hired me back as an editor, and I wrote my first book um, at for that company. And I wrote the book, didn't know anything about writing a book. And uh, uh, Mr. DeMuth told me, this is what I want you to do. And at night, I would write that book and work on it. And then I completed it, and we sat down next to each other and edited every word of that book together. And he taught me how to edit and taught me how to put a book together what a great guy yeah he was fantastic changed my life that's great now you've gone on to write more than one book how many books do you have under your belt now i have uh i've had 26 in print i have one that's still i've written it but it's not uh been published yet and it's a trade book and so i'm Still looking for a publisher. All right. So I've actually read that. <laughs> and why don't you talk a little bit about that book? It, the, the title should kind of tee the whole thing up. Well, the book title is We Buried Dad in a Leisure Suit. Um, and the title is true. Um, and I wanted to write um, a book about my father and my family. And um, and it it took me a long time to figure out how to write it. And finally, I came on this idea that I would retell the story of his life, but it would start with the morning my mom called me and told me my dad had died. And, and you were in college. I was in college. And my dad, uh, my brother 
came to pick me up with my girlfriend at the time. And as we drove back to the funeral, we retell the story of his life. And of course, his life, you know, uh, interweaves with my life. So there's part of my story in there too. And it ends at his funeral. So your, your dad was a laborer. Right. Yeah, my dad was a, a plasterer, a stucco. Um, I used to tell the joke that my mom and dad were in the same business. Dad plastered walls and mom plastered people. She she ran a tavern in my hometown, Shirley's Northside Tavern. And um, so they were sort of in the same business, <laughs> just using a different medium. So your dad had what I think you may have gotten from your dad, at least what I know is his incredible work ethic. My dad uh, didn't make any difference what time he went to bed. Uh, he was up and ready for work at 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, and he, he fell off a scaffolding, fell a story and a half or two stories, and he went to work the next day. Um, he, was, um, he worked like he was killing snakes. He went after it with everything in him and uh, just never missed work. And, um, and I think um, my brother uh, Deke got that same work ethic. Now, I have a couple of brothers that probably got my mom's work ethic. She was a little bit more relaxed about work. <laughs> she worked in a different kind of environment. She did indeed. That was relaxed. <laughs> indeed. Well, I'm looking forward to that book, Finding a Publisher. Me too. It's a really, it's a really good book. <laughs> Thank you. Now, you also are the author of a regular blog. How many how many blog posts have you made now? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, wrote my 1,000th blog post. And uh, I had no idea my kids were going to celebrate it with me. They ended up uh, bringing um, red velvet cupcakes. Um, and we all celebrated that blog post. Um, so that was a big event. Um, I started that blog because my oldest daughter said she wanted to write a blog. And it was going to be called All About Alia. And so... And Alia is how old now? She's uh, 20 now. She's a junior Boston University. Right. So nine years ago or 10 years ago, she said, well, I want to write this blog post and uh, blog. And I said, well, I'll write one too, because I wanted to encourage uh, her creativity and, and writing. So Huma, uh, my wife, is really good at the technical stuff. And she set up a blog for my daughter and set up one for, one for me. And mine is called Gravely Speaking. And it's all about gravestones, the images, the symbolism, the sometimes it's about the story of the person uh, underneath the gravestone, or it's about the architecture of the mausoleum. Um, whatever, the great thing about a blog post is you get to write about whatever you want to. So I, I do that. But uh, anyway, Huma set us up, and my daughter wrote one blog post and never wrote another one. <laughs> and <laughs> nine, ten years later, I'm still writing blog posts, and I um, haunt cemeteries. I've probably taken 300,000 photos of 300,000. Uh, I have... Um, that's, a, that's a memory stick right there. <laughs> that's, I've got this humongous, uh, it's not a flash drive, but hard whatever, drive. hard drive, um, with all of those photos on it. And 
The hardest thing for me is just deciding what I want to write about because I've got so many, so much material. So sometimes it takes days for me to think about what I want to write about. So you and I have visited a few cemeteries as we've done our travels around, which has been a blast. So how do you, one of the things that you've done is, is you'll find um, uh, a sculpture that is done by a certain artist and you'll tie that to another sculpture by the same artist or a duplicate. How do you know where to go look in 300,000 pictures? Uh, it's a crazy thing, but um, I remember where they are. Um, and I very much remember uh, you and I visiting a cemetery in uh, Cheltenham, Australia. In fact, uh, it was very close to the office, the Hawker Brownlow office there. And um, we were walking, we were staying there in apartment close to the offices and we, every night we would walk from the building to the apartment complex where we were staying and one night after work you said do you want to go in there and take a look and I said well I'd love to and you said now we don't want to go too far because I know how you are you will get in there and we'll be there all night long so we're just going to look at a few and then we'll you know go eat dinner and I said that'd be great well, one thing led to another, and before long, we're clear in the back of the graveyard, and we start working our way back, and we realize that we've been locked into the cemetery. Great place to spend the night. Yeah. And the only way out is to climb this fence, and we both have our backpacks from the Hello day's work. No, no, not not a small fence. In fact, it's about eight feet tall. So you say to me, well, now look, we have to uh, grab this fence and you want to get your leg on this crossbar and then flip yourself over. And you hop over like you're the American ninja. And I'm standing on the other side. Uh, and uh, I thought I was going to break a hip when I hit the other side. But we made it out. And a few days later, I did visit that cemetery and uh, because they have security cameras all over the place. And I wanted to tell them that, you know, we'd accidentally got uh, locked in. And they said, you know, getting out of the cemetery isn't a crime. It's getting into the cemetery that's the crime. So you're fine. So I was relieved at that. <laughs> but to your point, um, I find it fascinating that some of the world's greatest uh, artists have done these uh, commissions for funerary pieces. Um, and when I talk about some of the greatest uh, artists, I'm talking about people like Daniel Chester French, who uh, uh, sculpted Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial. And um, some of his um, graveyard uh, pieces are absolutely beautiful. There's one in a cemetery in Atlanta that he did that is um, every bit as beautiful as the piece that he did of Abraham Lincoln. It's just magnificent. But there's all sorts of, there's um, Laredo Taft, um, who was an Illinois uh, artist um, that's done all sorts of uh, monumental pieces around the United States. Um, 
he did um, a piece called um, Pioneer that's uh, the Pioneer family that's in his little town um, in uh, Illinois that's magnificent. Or um, Nellie Walker, who had a book written about her. She was a little tiny woman, about four foot eight. And she studied with Laredo Taft. She's about four foot eight. And the book written about her was called The Woman Who Works on a Ladder, because she did these monumental pieces. She did uh, Chief Keokuk. It's a huge um, sculpture of Ch- uh, Chief Keokuk. And she uh, it would tower above her. So I love finding those pieces and sharing out who the artists were and then sharing their other work um, because uh, I don't think a lot of people understand that you can walk into um, cemeteries and see some of the greatest artwork uh, in the United States. Uh, you don't find monumental pieces like that just you know in the city square. They're um, you know they're in the neighborhood cemetery often. So do they still make them? I mean, do artists still create those things for cemeteries as much as they used to back in? I don't think so. I think um, I think that was um, really Victorian era stuff. Um, I, I think uh, we went through a period where the wealthy um, showed their wealth um, as much in the cemetery as they did in life. Um, um, there's... You know, a lot of people understand that as you lived, you died. So if you were wealthy, you probably ended up with a mausoleum or a great, you know, sculpture um, commemorating your uh, gravesite. Um, so, but um, but in the twenties, we went through an egalitarian period where, um, you know, the wealthy weren't showing their wealth as much as they did in the high Victorian times from about 1870 to 1920. They still do, though. The rich people still spend their money that way. Hmm. Uh, you can't take it with you, but you can um, sure spend some on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you've, got a, you've always had a, a big interest in ancestry and so forth, but how did you, and then we'll move on to another topic, how did you get involved with cemeteries at Tombstone? I mean, did Logan, Iowa have a great cemetery when it, you were a kid? No, it doesn't. It's a pretty uh, common-looking cemetery, but um, and even a more pedestrian cemetery is one in Little Sioux, Iowa, uh, which is where five generations of my dad's family is buried. So my dad, um, you know, like everybody at the time, would take flowers on decoration day to, you know, put flowers on his family's um, gravestones and graves. And we'd get there and um, my dad always had, you know, a lot of stories about people's graves we were decorating like, oh, that cousin, um, that aunt and uncle had 17 kids. And when we'd visit, we'd have to see all of us sleep sideways in the bed. And I had one cousin that wet the bed, so you wanted to you know, sleep on the end of the bed, not in the middle, because that's where it drained, you know. And it'd be decoration day, and people are pretty solemn. My dad would be telling me these stories, and we'd be laughing and carrying on and really enjoying ourselves. And that's when I kind of realized there are a lot of stories in the cemetery. Um, And I also realized that a lot of people walk by the symbolism 
on a gravestone, and they don't really understand what that symbolism means. And so there's this whole kind of silent language in the graveyard, and part of what I wanted to do was explain what that is so people would have an understanding of what they're looking at. It's a, it's a great blog, so those listening, if you want to do it, it's called gravelyspeaking.com, uh, and it, it's, it's a great blog. Well, thank I, you very I really much. enjoy it. Um, so let's talk a little bit, uh, I think I could talk about your family uh, over three more blogs, because it's, it's quite colorful, and you'll pull a lot of that out of the, uh, um, the book when it gets published. But the one character I want you to talk about is, is your uncle and the profession that he chose and how. Well, my uncle Ron, uh, his, his real name was Roland Keith Gillette. He was my dad's half-brother. Um, my grandmother was married four times. And, um, uh, and it was, a, a, you know, in the day and age when people didn't do that. But my family uh, was always um, full of early adopters. So the first divorce in our family was in the 1860s. And, uh, <laughs> we, we have uh, clung to that ever since. Um, um, my great-great-great-grandfather, David uh, Reif, uh, divorced Harriet. But anyway... Um, so Uncle Ron um, decided that he was going to uh, live kind of a life of crime. He didn't really like to work. And so he thought uh, the best way to get money would be kind of take somebody else's. So the first um, burglary he was involved in was in Norman, Oklahoma. And he and this buddy of his broke into this house and burgled the house. And as it turns out, he found this great cowboy hat and uh, decided he would take that to a little personal item. Well, as it turns out, um, he was caught by the sheriff and he had burgled the sheriff's house and he was wearing the sheriff's hat. <laughs> um, which You're not the smartest burglar. <laughs> Not the smartest burglar. And actually, um, he had, he led an entire lifetime of crime. Um, and while he kept trying, he was largely unsuccessful. Um, <laughs> because he was, he was in and out of prison his entire life. And in fact, when he was in, um, he was in prison in Terre Haute, which is a maximum security prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. I would write him letters. And um, at, at the time, I was working at a company called American Teaching Aids. And he wrote me and said, hey, nephew, tell me what you do. And I was thinking about that. I thought, what's a way to show him what I do, share with him one of my products? And I just wanted to put it in a little envelope. And we... Uh, were we had designed these community awareness badges for kids so they could do role play in uh, early elementary. And we had a nurse's badge and a doctor's badge and we had a sheriff's badge and a police badge. And the sheriff badge and police badge were uh, printed on foil. So they'd have more of a realistic look to them. So I put a bunch of these badges <laughs> in the envelope and mailed it to him. And uh, they confiscated those as contraband, so evidently they looked pretty realistic. <laughs> but um, he he petitioned; he was going to uh, be sent to a halfway house, 
and he petitioned um, the prison system to uh, let him go to a halfway house in Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis, where I was living. And so he got to go to this halfway house, and um, occasionally I would get him out. He'd say, "I, you know, I, you can sign me out for the weekend," and I'd say, "Now listen." I can sign you out, and I we can drink a six pack of beer, and I can grill some steak and all that kind of stuff. But you can't do anything funny like run off because I'll be in trouble. He said, "No, no, no, nephew, no." He called you nephew. Yeah, he called me nephew all the time. <laughs> and I had a lot of nephews. I'm not sure if he just couldn't remember my name or not, <laughs> but he always called me nephew. Um, so. I'd get him out, you know, and I'd get him cigarettes and socks and underwear, and we'd drink a few beers and um, we'd have steak. And he, I, to his credit, he never did take off. I'd check him back in, and um, he would tell me outrageous stories, and that really was part of what got me so interested in family history. And I like all the names and dates and finding out where your people come from and all that kind of stuff. But it's the stories that put the flesh on the family history. The names and dates are the bones. The stories are the flesh. That's what makes it interesting to me. I bet you had some pretty fun family picnics and family reunions. Oh, my gosh, we did. And uh, there's one. Uh, my dad was born on June 21st, which is when uh, the day of the summer solstice. And his big joke was, uh, it's the longest day of the year, and I'm sure Grandma thought so, too. <laughs> but we, we, we were, we'd have these family picnics uh, for Dad because we never knew what to get him for his birthday. So we'd always have a family picnic for him, and my uh, aunts and uncles and cousins would come, and we'd have a big deal. And one year, um, Grandma was there, and Grandma would get impatient. And she'd say, when are we going to go? When are we going to go? And she'd just pepper dad with that over and over and over. And my dad would blow up. He had a volatile temper. And he would go sit in the car. And uh, so we were... said that to his mother. Yeah, I said that to his mother. And she was about 80 at the time. And so she'd amble over to the car. And one time, uh, you know, summertime, it was hot. And... Um, she opened up the car and she sat down on those leather seats and that sun had been beaten in there and she raised up and she said, oh my, that's the hottest that's been in a long time. <laughs> and we, we all started laughing. It kind of took the edge off of Dad being mad at her for peppering him uh, with the question about when are we going to leave. Um, but Dad was a character and... Um, that's why I wanted to write about it. That's great. That is great. All right. So let's talk about uh, your professional path a little bit. And I'm going to wrap up. I want to hear more about your kids and stuff. But so in 46 years, you've seen publishing change quite a bit. You worked for uh, Simon Schuster. You worked for Frank Schaefer. Um, talk about educational publishing. How has that changed from when you got into the educational publishing side of things? Maybe it was... Uh, with Simon first and then through Corwin? And well, um, the, the there's been massive change in educational publishing since I got in. Um, when I started, um, uh, c 
companies like Macmillan and Newbridge and uh, Scholastic had big um, book clubs. And most of them were negative option, which means you join the book club and they would send you a selection of books they wanted to sell you. Um, and they'd always have a main selection. And if you didn't write back and say, I don't want one this month, they'd mail it to you and then charge you. So a lot of companies uh, early on could sell to those book clubs. And uh, it was another stream of revenue for them, uh, huge. In fact, as an editor, I used to sell to the book clubs, Newbridge, Troll, um, Trumpet, Scholastic. I'd go into New York City and I'd sell our stuff to the uh, book clubs. And uh, I think my biggest sale was 150,000 units. They were going to start, uh, Newbridge was going to start a book club for middle school and they were going to have an incentive for the teachers. You join, you're going to get 10, you're going to get 15 cop, uh, 10 copies of these 15 books. And um, they estimated they'd get uh, so many thousands of teachers to join. So they bought 150,000 units. Now, the price was reduced, but what you would uh, be able to do was hook your printing onto their printing. And if you were printing 150,000 units and you added in yours, you got your uh, books at a very, very low cost. So you were increasing your margin. And most of us believed that uh, the book club customer was not the same customer that we were selling to either through a teacher store or direct. So um, that, that was a huge difference. And all of those book clubs now for educators are gone. Mm -hmm. uh, Scholastic still has a book club for kids, but not for uh, teachers anymore. Right. So that was one difference. The, another difference was there used to be a network of teacher stores across the country. And um, some of those teacher stores um, were franchised, like J.L. Hammett had dozens of teacher stores around the com uh, country, and we would sell into um, those teacher stores, and you, you sold bulk in those days because they would be buying for all of their stores if they liked your material. Um, and most of those teacher stores are gone now. In fact, at one time, there were so many teacher stores, there were two organizations that serviced the store owners. There was what was called EDSA and NSSEA. And um, most of the manufacturers belonged to both of those organizations uh, because different teacher store owners belonged to different organizations. And we'd go to both conventions. It was a huge deal. Um, and when I was at Frank Schaefer, we would get two hundred and fifty or $300,000 worth of orders at the show. Hmm. So it was a really big deal. Uh, so those are, those are two huge changes in the industry. And of course, technology's changed everything. Um, and by technology, I mean the internet. Now more and more teachers um, buy direct or buy through Amazon. And that's been another huge change. I remember being at uh, BEA or Book Expo, um, and I used to go to them when they were in LA and they'd switch back between LA and New York. But I remember being at 
BEA one year, and somebody was talking about Amazon. I didn't even know what it was. And I said to somebody, uh, what are you talking about? What's this Amazon thing? And they said, well, this guy started this company, and they're going to sell books online. And I thought, well, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. That is never <laughs> going to take off. Because I used to go to teacher stores, and we did a lot of analysis um, back then. When we, when we would watch teachers pick up a book, they'd look at the cover. They'd give it what we called the flip test. They'd be looking at reproducibles and text and how the book was laid out. Um, and they would flip and look at the back cover. And if they spent about 15, 20 seconds looking at the book, often they'd buy the book just with that quick review. And so, you know, um, one of the things that I've always said to any designer I ever worked with is never judge a book by its cover unless you want to sell books. Because the cover is that you know, billboard for the content, right? And um, and so uh, I just couldn't see how Amazon would take off. And now here, you know, at Solution Tree, it's, it represents about, uh, distributor sales rep represent about 40% of our sales. Yep, And Amazon, of course, is our biggest distributor. So they become, you know, uh, Goliath in the market. Um, and you couldn't foresee that uh, 46 years ago. People didn't have computers on their desks. When I started working in that computer room 46 years ago, the computer was the size of the room. Oh, sure, sure. And it had an elevated floor uh, that you could pick up the tiles because so much uh, electric wiring was underneath the floor. Yeah. And I remember they had a little suction cup so you could pick up those little squares and get under there and work on the wiring. Well, now there's as much memory in your phone. It's in my right-hand pocket now. Yeah, now, now yeah. so... So those are the sweeping changes that I've seen um, in the last uh, 46 years in terms of, you know, getting to the market. I also think that um, uh, there's been changes in, obviously, in what topics are the most important that changes. Um, uh, and it seems to be cyclical. You know, there's always topics that come back. There's topics that are evergreens. We're never going to um, stop needing new ideas about literacy, but now you have things like well-being and teacher care and uh, things like that that nobody thought of uh, publishing about those things decades ago. So I became president of Solution Tree in 1998. You became president of Corn Press in 2001, 2002? 2001. 2001. And... Maybe I'm delusional, but I believe at the same time that you were president of Corwin, I was president of Solution Tree. <clears throat> we were the two companies that kind of drove the educational publishing market from researcher to practitioner. Do you believe that's true or not? I, I do told. believe that's true. I, I think there's another. I think there's another hallmark for Solution Tree. 
Um, I, you know, our hallmark has been here that um, it's where uh, research and practice intersect. We want books that are um, definitely based on research, but are practical. So uh, that practitioner can take the book off the shelf and use it the day they buy it. Um, but I think another, um, you know, hallmark for Solution Tree is the marriage between what the author has written and the other platforms um, on which they can um, share their IP or intellectual property. There is only one other company I knew of that really tried to make that marriage work, and it was Skylight, and they did it decades ago. But they were never as successful with that um, model um, of PD events and um, resources as Solution Tree has been. Um, Jim Belanco um, founded the co uh, company, and he would uh, go out and look for educators that were good presenters and then sign them up. Um, but he never developed the event side. He got some of those teachers to go out and, uh, you know, do a few speaking things and a little bit of PD. Um, but mainly he worked with them to promote their own work rather, rather than the company promote it. And I think, uh, I can't think of another company in our uh, niche uh, our segment of the market that is as successful as we are. I worked at, while I was at Simon & Schuster, one of our uh, sister companies was Modern Curriculum Press, and they had per diems that went out and did professional development, but it was just on their textbook series, right. uh, Platphonics. It wasn't helping the educator actually be better with methodology or pedagogy. It was just so they understood how to use and implement the textbook. Right, right. So, well, National Educational Service was the company that my business partner and I bought in 98. And it was just a, a little company, but it was doing some good stuff, we thought. And it had what we called the three legs of the stool now, which was publishing, professional development and conferences, but they were not connected to each other. They would have theme events, like strategies for reaching angry and disruptive youth, but we wouldn't have an anchor book or an author around it. And we had professional development only if people called in. We had one woman who worked part-time at home, had an 800 number into her house, Colette Richardson, and she would, uh, uh, she would do the PD. But none of it was connected, and we kind of connected it together, which is built on the mission of advanced work of your authors. When that became the, the mission of Solution Tree or National Educational Service at that time, that's when it all started coming together tightly. So it seems to have worked out pretty well. Well, I remember when I first started working here, and you told me the mission of the company, advance the work of our authors. And I remember saying to you, I think, I think it's crazy. I remember that. It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't say anything about educators. It doesn't say anything about the little children in the schoolhouse. And you said to me, you know, if we get the right authors and they write the right books, all of that other stuff will take care of itself. 
And that was an epiphany uh, because that really resonated with me and made sense. But I do remember that when I first started, I thought, this is just crazy talk. <laughs> I remember another time when you thought I was crazy when I said, I don't care how many books you publish, you can publish just one, just make it the right one. Yeah, I thought that was pretty crazy. That's um, true. <laughs> but it's hard to um, put all your eggs in one ba I mean egg in one basket. And so uh, like one I, big egg. <laughs> that one big egg. When I first started here, the HR director said to me, um, hey, I got an idea for you. I said, what's that, Chris? And he said, uh, why don't you sign a book that every teacher buys? Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> I said, wow, that is a great idea. Could you tell me what that book would be? Because that would be the year that you only published the one. <laughs> I'm glad we did. But we do, we do publish a lot less at Solution Tree than you did at well, uh, one of the things that I think is important, and I've been on panel discussions at a lot of educational conferences uh, with other publishers, and uh, I had a lady ask me one time uh, at the panel discussion, am I better off going to a big publishing house or, or should I be at a small publishing house? And I said, well, I'm not going to say anything bad about large or small publishing houses Part of that is going to depend on what you want from the publisher, what they specialize in. But one, one of the things that I really appreciate about Solution Tree is we're not a puppy mill um, when it comes to publishing books. And that gives us the ability to focus on fewer authors and market them deeper and more uh, widely. Um, when you're publishing two, three hundred books a year, it's really hard to focus on any of your uh, authors. So I appreciate the fact that there's not a drive for us to keep increasing the number of books that we publish every year. And I think um, uh, that's been proven over time that it's good for the authors and it's good for the business. And over the years... Um You've seen tenfold what I've seen, but you'll have authors that hand in a manuscript that it's ready to go to, to print. All you got to do is, is design the cover. Ryan Anderson's uh, uh, cover team does a phenomenal job. And you mentioned cover before. You're saying, I always said, you can't sell a book by its cover, but you sure the heck not sell one by its cover. You sure can. That's absolutely right. The other difference um, um, that... I think we provide to authors that publishers don't provide anymore. We have developmental editors. We go through a blind peer review process. We share those reviews with the authors. We work with them on the changes that they and we think that uh, the final manuscript needs. And then it goes to our editorial team and then through production uh, publishing houses don't have developmental editors anymore. Well, that's kind of where I was headed. You've got authors that would turn books in that are, are ready to go. Then you got other authors that you think, wow, we really signed a contract with you to submit this? Those um, authors shall remain nameless, but there's absolutely. a lot of development that goes on there. Um, and even the authors that need work um, after the manuscript comes in, the one thing that remains constant is that the ideas um, that they're presenting um, for the teachers 
they're always solid because we work with people who have been in the classroom. They're still working sometimes in the classroom and they're still working with educators if they're not in the classroom anymore. And so that's where that um, ease of practice comes in, makes all the difference in the world. Well, it's, it's certainly some great books that have come out of Solution Tree and Corn Press, thanks to you and your team. And I can only guess to see how many books that you've overseen the production of in the years. That would be an interesting number to find yeah, out. Yeah, I can't even imagine what that would be. Um, one of the changes that I forgot to talk about was in the 80s, there was a huge uh, consolidation in the marketplace. When I went to work from uh, Perfection Forum to, um, I was working at a company, I went to work for a company called American Teaching Aids, which got purchased by Judy Instructo, which got purchased by uh, Silver Burdett and Ginn, which was purchased by Simon and Schuster, which was purchased by Paramount, which got purchased by um, Viacom. And um, then the little group I worked for uh, got sold to Harlequin, uh, the Ch uh, Children's Supplemental Educational Publishing Division. Um, and then that was sold to McGraw-Hill. Um, so a lot of consolidation in the 80s and 90s, and um, which I think happens every you know, 15, 20 years um, where you start to see um, that, that kind of uh, um, aggregation of companies. And the thing that I've seen that's consistent is a large company will buy a small company because it's doing really well, it has good financials, leadership is strong and creative. And then the bigger company buys that small company and gets rid of almost everything that made it successful. Um, I saw Simon & Schuster um, buy um, you know, a company called Good Apple. And uh, as soon as they bought it, it went from, within a few years, it went from 15 million to seven. Um, yeah. You know, that, that happens all this the time. This is the culture and the character. Exactly. Of the and, um, and, of course, they get rid of the leadership because they already have leadership. Yeah. And it's, you know, we all know how important leadership is to any organization. You know, walk into a successful school, a lot of it has to do with the principal at the school, of course, the teachers. In, in the front of the in, in front of the room but leadership is key big step alright as we're getting ready to wrap up I will be in uh, in the doghouse if I because your children may be listening to this blogcast at some point if we already know about Ali she's a junior at uh, Boston University where my son is a senior and she is studying international relations which is great she wants to go into the CIA I uh, well we're uh, actively talking her out of that. <laughs> She's no bigger in a minute, and it would scare me to death unless she was, you know, in the Pentagon or Langley um, and, you know, just doing transcriptions or something. <laughs> and then you have twins. I have a set of twins uh, that are 19, and my son is um, taking online classes at the local uh, community college, Ivy Tech, which uh, is the largest community college in the United States, has over 200,000 students. 
And my daughter Sophie, his twin sister, um, is uh, taking online classes at Loyola in Chicago. Um, and they all want to be on campus as soon as possible. So we're hoping that happens uh, by fall. Well, you've been able to keep them at home and have it online. My kids are on virtual, but they all went to their campuses. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that happened. Well, my, old, my oldest daughter's in Boston um, and taking classes online. So that's not a cheap proposition. But it's nice to have the twins one more year longer than we thought we'd have them. That's Sophie and Zane, my twins, and my oldest is Alia. But when um, one quick personal story to tell you how smart my wife is. When we found out we were having a boy and a girl instead of twins, I said to my wife, hey, I've got their names. And she said, you do? And I said, yeah, my grandfather was a twin, had a twin sister. And their names were Claude and Maud. And we could name our twins Claude and Maud. And she said, no, I don't think so. And so <laughs> their names Sophie and Zane, and I think in the long run she was probably right. You know, your wife and my wife and I got together because I wanted to name my youngest son after my favorite uncle, Herman. And we could <laughs> there's going to be no Herman in our And family. he's not named Herman. He's named Charlie. <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> well, you and whom are great parents, it has been so great becoming friends as well as colleagues with you over the years. Thanks for spending time with me today in the Treehouse. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. And don't forget, uh, gravelyspeaking.com. It's a great blog. Check it out. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Treehouse today. If you have an author or a topic to suggest for a future podcast, reach out to me directly at jeff.jones at solutiontree.com. Thank you for listening, and thank you for all that you do.